The Action Network Podcast, named Best Betting Podcast or Radio Show by the Fantasy Sports and Gaming Association, and the number one show for the invested sports fan. Without further ado, that's what the game's all about. All of a sudden, you feel like you can't miss. Welcome to the Action Network Podcast, special NBA edition. I'm your host, Matt Moore, senior NBA writer for the Action Network. You can find me on Twitter at HP Basketball. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Action Network HQ. Sports are back. Baseball is back, except for the Marlins. The NBA resumes on Thursday. The NFL is heading somewhere in the general direction of probably playing. Sports have returned, which means sports betting is back, which means you want to be following all the action on our app. Download the Action Network app wherever you get your applications, and you are going to thank me later. It is the most awesome, most incredible, fastest, best way to track your bets, but also to follow the games. It's got the fastest API in the business. I have never seen anything like it. It's got all of our great content. There's so much cool stuff. Check it out. Download the Action Network app. All right, on today's show, I have a whole, I have a smorgasbord for you. I have a plethora for you. That's right, a plethora. I said it. It's a plethora of guests. So with the NBA season approaching, I was like, who's a good guest? Who, oh, but I want to talk about all these different things. Who could I get? And then I was like, why settle? I have Ben Golliver from the Washington Post, who is inside the bubble down in Orlando. I have Yovan Buha, who covers the Los Angeles Clippers to talk about their chances of winning the NBA title. I have Sean Hyken from Bleacher Report to discuss the Portland Trailblazers and their over-under on the season win totals. I have Tony Jones from The Athletic talking about the jazz and whether or not that team can get it together. All this and more on the Action Network podcast. We'll start with my conversation with Ben Golliver, a dispatch from the bubble in Orlando. Here's Ben Golliver from the Washington Post. The NBA is back. Can we get serious now? So let's bet the bubble. It may sound easy, but it will test your head and your mind and your brain too. Okay, Ben, so first question, um, you've been in the arena. What's the difference between being in the arena and being and like watching on TV? What, what's the experience? like? How does the, the arena feel when you're in there? Well, it's funny because they actually do call it the arena, but I think that they <laughs> should actually they should call it the set to me because it feels like it's a television set. It's got the bright lights, um, similar to how the Lakers you know, do the studio lighting for their games. It's similar to that. It really like makes the court pop but you feel like you're kind of walking out on a set, like at the Warner brothers lot, you know, or like you're behind the scenes at Seinfeld or something like that. That's sort of what it feels like the way they put this thing together. The video boards um, are big, but they do just kind of blend into the background when you're watching the game. The, the biggest, most obvious change for writers is that we're so close to the action. I mean, you know, basically, you know, in, in one of the buildings, we're like eight feet away from the sideline, you know? So when guys are inbounding the ball, they're not very far away from us. Uh, you know, basketballs are flying into the media section during pregame warmups. I mean, that kind of feels so it's even more intimate of a setting than summer league. It's very quiet other than the soundtrack and the rap music. You know, Paul George hit a buzzer beater at the end of the first half of the Clippers first game. And one woman clapped three times. That was the only noise when he hit it <laughs> in the entire building. So obviously that's a lot different than Staples Center where, you know, you would have had Steve Ballmer chest bumping somebody and, 
two mascots running around, T-shirt cannons going into the stadium and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, the basketball seemed surprisingly uh, similar to me. You know, I, I expected uglier stuff after the long layoff. Uh, but I think they've set up a nice situation where the, the game itself will be the show. I should also mention the, uh, the, audio, the audio standpoint. They've got a lot of mics in these buildings basically to enhance the audio. So you really hear the sneaker squeaks on TV. You also hear them in person as well. And you can also hear all the, the chirping back and forth between the benches, the players, uh, the referees and everything else. I mean, I've already heard Wesley Matthews tell one referee, hey, man, you missed that call because you've been off the job for four months. I know you're still working back into shape. You know, I heard uh, Frank Vogel, you know, kind of tell LeBron in a very passive-aggressive way that he needs to remember not to fall for Luka Doncic's fakes because he's the best at selling contact in the entire league, saying it very loud, you know, trying to make sure that the referees heard his points about, you know, Luka kind of flopping. Um, so you're, you're hearing these kinds of moments that we wouldn't normally get, and I think that those are some of the biggest changes. That's really interesting. That's just – that's super interesting. The quiet thing is – is – one th- that was said yesterday by uh, Ionescu for the Liberty. She was saying, "Look, it's so quiet in here," um, and that seems to be kind of the thing that nobody really understands. Uh, uh, that's not coming across on TV because right now the scrimmages, the audio is pretty high on the broadcasters. Like it seems like a normal game to me, where like the primary sound that you're hearing is just the the broadcasters. Like so. Uh, it is interesting that you can hear all the defensive callouts and stuff like that because I don't know that that's that's coming through on in terms of the television. So yeah, this is a pretty I don't know I don't even know how, if you know how to judge it, but I got to ask like compared to what we're used to in terms of defensive communication, do you think there's been more or less or the same as far as like guys well, making callouts? Well, I'll say this: the Lakers were leaning into the self talk very heavily in their first thing. I mean, LeBron was calling out every defensive matchup anytime there was a substitution when he was on the court not only for himself like if he needed to switch onto somebody he he was calling it out for the entire team it kind of felt like he was almost doing it for our benefit as the media just because you know to let us know that he could Uh, but you know Frank Vogel has made comments all season long that's like sort of a LeBron staple of his leadership and so I think that he's taken that seriously we've seen some teams who I think that they've probably had internal meetings and just decided like look our answer to the lack of home court advantage or the quiet arena or just the weird circumstances is that we have to talk more than we've ever talked before. So if you watch that Lakers bench in their first game, they're celebrating practically every single basket. They're cheering for each other. They're all yelling, you know, hooting and hollering almost the entire game. It was very, very loud and noticeable from them. Now, not every team is like that. Of course, you know, some teams are you know excited if there's a big three-pointer or a nice dunk or something like that. But they really seem to be making a point that like, hey, we're going to be our own cheerleaders. We're our own, you know, fan cheering section when we're on the bench. And it kind of works because they've got, you know, 35 people parties here. And so a lot of those people are in that general bench area. Of course, they're spaced out in kind of an individual seating. But you can make a decent amount of noise if you've got 20 people watching your team from the sideline and you're all cheering. And and that seemed to be like a a real pointed uh, strategy from them. We'll see if it keeps up. But uh yeah, no, certainly like the, the audio part of it is fascinating because, you know, you've got LeBron after a dunk, you know, kind of jogging by the, the media table and saying, you know, I'm still the baddest guy in the world. Uh, you know, you've got other, you know, Giannis going after a referee demanding that he didn't get charged for an offensive foul because he dunked on somebody. Um, even, I don't know if you saw the scary moment where Giannis's brother crashed to the floor and hit his yeah. head on the court. 
I mean, that it was a scary scene in any gym, right? But they have these extra mics that kind of make the sound pop. And we're so close to the action that I jumped in my seat when that happened because it was directly in front of me. And I, I almost, you know, stood up like it was uh, it was that jarring. So, uh, again, that's not what would normally happen at an NBA building, even in the very best seats. You know, if you're sitting courtside at Oklahoma City or you're sitting down in the corner in Staples, which is a great seat, it's just not the same, um, you know, overload type of sensory experience that we've got here. So, uh, are you guys, do they have the media spaced out as well? They have the media spaced out and we've got all sorts of rules. It's pretty amazing. But like in the building, the main rule is once you get to your seat, don't leave your seat unless you need to like go to the bathroom. Like you you can't wander around. You're not supposed to chat with people. They're encouraging us. Hey, like if you're seated, you know, three seats away from someone, uh, just text them. Like don't get up and and walk over there. We wear masks the entire time. Uh, We are socially distanced. We've got um, you know, the, the hand sanitizer is basically everywhere. Uh, when we do the post-game availabilities, they've been very strict. I mean, the Lakers even said, look, if you guys don't back up and space out, LeBron's not going to talk, right? And so they've limited the number of people who can actually attend any individual game. They've limited the number of people, at least they've tried to, in terms of who can be in a scrum after the game. Uh, they're really trying to keep a bubble within the bubble to keep all the players safe and away from you know outside contact and that includes media members um i should also say like I mean, these empty arenas are different for me as well i mean as an nba writer it's the emptiest there's ever been by far you know i think other than like high school scrimmages that i've gone to go see like high profile aau prospects um when they're like you know 10th 11th graders i can't remember the last time i was covering action in a gym this empty you know because it would just never play out that way and so there's an adjustment process for the writers too well i'm glad you're doing you're doing well i'm glad that you're hanging in there uh i'm glad that everything is so far working it it seems from this perception and this is my last question for you it seems from this from my vantage point that the players and coaches especially the coaches seem to have like a high level of confidence in this thing holding like there's going to be debates about what Lou Williams did and all of these things, but all of the protocols that they have are specifically to avoid risk. If somebody leaves and all these things, does there continue to be like a, is there a a strong sense that like, yeah, this is going to work. This is going to be okay. Um, Or is there still kind of a sense of unease that you picked up on at all? Well, I would say two things. First of all, it does hang over everything like the virus, the idea that like if there's one round of tests that goes the wrong way, everything could be taken away definitely is hanging in the air. And I think it's going to be hanging there the whole time. Right. At the same time, I feel a lot safer and a lot more comfortable than I thought I would. I mean, I was pretty paranoid about this entire thing for the entire run up to coming down to the bubble. I mean, I was basically never leaving my apartment in Los Angeles. I was having everything delivered. I was like fully bunkered in. And so the prospect of coming to someplace where there was a thousand other people I knew there was going to be more social context for me basically in one day when I arrived than there were in the previous four months combined. I mean, that's how isolated I was, right? And so that part made me nervous. But I think that part of what develops is a a peace of mind. When you get tested every single day, and then you get the results back within 24 hours, and you're participating in the medical health questionnaire, and you're submitting your temperature check, and you're giving them your pulse ox reading, and you're doing all these other things, it just makes you feel like you're part of this supported network, rather than just sort of an individual who just like doesn't know, you know, like I had never been tested before I got down here. So um, it, that, that was just a change in and of itself. But it, it gives you this peace of mind, this idea that like there are people looking out um, after you, you are getting real-time results. If something were to happen, there's a clear process for how they would handle it. I um, mean, so that part, it does put your mind at ease a little bit. 
um, you know, two weeks in, my mentality right now is like, this has been so much fun seeing LeBron James, you know, play head to head against Luka Doncic to watch him powerfully address the Breonna Taylor stuff, to watch Giannis put on a dunk parade against the San Antonio Spurs, to go to practices in, in these crazy Disney ballrooms that have been turned into practice courts and you know, talk to different players who are adjusting to life down here. It's a lot of fun, man. It's like really, really cool. It's basketball summer camp. It's basketball study abroad. You know, I'm watching refs play pickleball as I'm walking to get my dinner. Uh, there's Brad Stevens on his phone FaceTiming. You don't want it to go away at this point. Now it's just like, please, like, let's play defense here. Let's like make sure that everybody just locks down and we don't have any you know, strip club incidents or Postmates incidents or anything else that could kind of threaten this thing. Because they've got a very stable start. The games are right around the corner. The real games start on Thursday, uh, July 30th. And, uh, you know, it feels like it could be sustainable. It feels stable. It doesn't feel thrown together. Of course, there's adjustments being made on the fly. But for right now, I'm feeling good about it. And there definitely is a level of confidence and a greater degree of confidence than I thought I would feel um, before I came down here. That's Ben Golliver from the Washington Post. You can follow him on Twitter at Ben Golliver, G-O-L-L-I-V-E-R. Next up, I want to check in on the Blazers. The Blazers are a fascinating team going into this thing. They get Yusuf Nurkic back. They get Zach Collins back. And, of course, everyone's very excited. And there's Dame. And Dame is Dame. And so there's a lot of expectation that maybe they can pull this off. Um, The Trailblazers are plus 340, actually, to make the playoffs which they're getting a lot of buzz in all of these conversations about who it is that's going to come out. Everyone kind of thinks the Pelicans and Grizzlies, but all of a sudden the Blazers are getting some of that conversation. Uh, They've got an over three and a half win total, and I want to get a sense for exactly what to think of them. So I checked in with Sean Hyken. Sean Hyken writes for Bleacher Report amongst a couple of other places. You can follow him on Twitter at Hyken, H-I-G-H-K-I-N. Great information here. Here's my conversation with Sean Hyken from Bleacher Report. All right, Sean, so the Blazers have become this kind of sexy pick to make the eighth seed. Um, Their over-under for wins in this restart is three and a half. Their odds for making the playoffs are a very tasty plus 420. They are a very, like I said, very popular pick to reach the NBA playoffs uh, during this restart. So I've kind of noticed that going into – the tournament or the the bubble rather going into the bubble there was a lot of noise that like I don't know if Portland really wants to be there like executives were making comments like I don't know if Portland really wants to be there now however having seen a couple of their scrimmage games and especially heard their comments it seems like there's a little bit more optimism they seem a little bit more engaged they seem a little bit more um, excited to be a part of this do you get the sense that they are actually in fact gunning for that eight seed oh I do absolutely I I think that some of the early trepidation about it from their end, and we have to remember they were the only one of the, tw- of the 30 teams to actually vote against the, uh, the, the restart proposal that the, that the league did. Uh, I think that was more out of, they didn't like that 22 teams were in it. They, think, they thought they could have done it with less. And this goes back to what Dane told Chris Haynes around that time also of saying he only wanted to play if they had an actual chance to make the playoffs. But now that they're there, I think especially now that they've had their training camp and they've had their practices and they've had their scrimmages and they've seen how good Nurkic and Collins have looked, which was obviously the big question mark and is the reason why a lot of people, maybe not myself, but a lot of people are picking them to actually maybe make a little bit of a run here. Like, 
I think now that they've seen those guys, I think they're kind of getting back into it. And obviously, you know, Dame is competitive. You know, Dame, once Dame gets there, Dame isn't going to be in here saying, okay, well, let's, uh, let's just get through these eight games and then go home. Like Dame, now that they're there, he wants to actually do it. So I have a pretty low opinion of Nurkic, not only built off of his time uh, in Denver and some of the bad habits that I saw from him there, but I never really saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw him. I didn't really, part of it was like, I was, I'm always willing to give guys a chance to improve, but I've never really seen like the idea of Nurkic is always greater than what, if you actually look at the data, like the numbers just don't bear out that he has that much of an impact. If you start separating out actually exactly what makes them good. But part of what I'm hesitating on with that is look, just, the replacement value over Whiteside defensively, even if Nurkic isn't good, he's not bad defensively. He's still a big body that's willing to block and give hard fouls. Uh, he will make some rotations. He will give effort because of the way that Dame is able to get into his head and motivate him. Um, this has been w- truly one of the most awful, horrible defensive teams in the league this season. They are just a depressing watch on defense. Do you think that Collins and Nurkic coming back is enough to lift them to okay, like 16th to 14th level of defense? It can't hurt. I mean, it can't be worse than what they have already. And I mean, I think the point that you made about Nurk is a good one that, you know, he will give you effort. He will make the rotations. He isn't just out here chasing blocks and chasing stats the way that Whiteside has at times this season. So I think it's going to help. I don't know if it's going to help enough for them to actually get the eight seed, but it's certainly going to be an improvement over what they had been doing this whole year. So a lot of it is in order to get to the, uh, they have a game lead over, they have a lead over the Pelicans based off of win percentage, having played two more games, which means that for the Pelicans to pass them, they have to finish with a higher, with a better record in these games. Um, Even though the Pelicans won the season series, doesn't matter because of that win percentage differential. So if the Blazers go four and four, the Pelicans are going to have to go, go five and three in order to pass them. Um, I would say that having looked at the schedule, like I like new Orleans over quite a bit after I looked at the schedule and some of the stuff from their, from how they looked at full health, but the Pelicans health is always a question mark. Um, I'm willing to go ahead and say the Pelicans are going to win five games at least they're over under five and a half. So we have to find him in order to take the blazers. You have to have two precepts here. You have to accept one. They're going to need to win, uh, at least five games and two, they're going to have to, um, be able to beat Memphis twice in a row. Uh, they went 0-2 versus Memphis in the regular season, but of course they've got Nurkic uh, and Collins back and the idea is that they're an entirely different team. Let's put Houston Clippers. Houston Clippers, let's put into, they're going to lose those games. Those well, two teams. Actually, so the thing about that is like the Clippers are pretty locked into the two at this point, right? True. So they're probably not going to be, and especially we already know that like they don't play Kawhi and like other guys when they don't have to the Clippers might just not play their guys in that game. okay so let's move let's go ahead and go this way um I'm willing to put Boston Houston Denver Clippers and Dallas those five into coin flip games they can go either way Portland that full strength is good enough to to win or lose those five Philly I kind of want to put a, a little bit above the fray they're gonna have they're gonna have motivation to play um they're pretty good. They look a lot better with Ben Simmons. So I kind of want to put them in a, that's a loss. Boston, I kind of lean towards that's a loss. Like I just feel like Boston's decidedly yeah. better than Portland. I All right, so let's move Boston there. So we got two losses out the gate. Um, we've got four coin flips and we've got two should wins in Memphis and Brooklyn. They're favored versus Memphis in the opener by two and a half. Again, Memphis did beat them 2-0 and it honestly was kind of a beat down, but Nurkic and 
Collins are back, so maybe the idea is that makes them entirely entirely better. Brooklyn is is a win. That's no question. Like that's the last game of the season. They can win those. They have like Brooklyn also have like no guys. So. Right. So we got we've got two should wins. They got to get three more out of Houston, Denver, Clippers, Dallas. What's the model for them to get to that five wins? I think Houston is one of those teams where like there's they have such a high ceiling but such a low floor just because we don't know what a a like we don't know how healthy like all their guys are going because they've had so many different guys that have been in and out and then also just like there's still there's still such little data that we have about you know how this current version of the Rockets has played basically since they made the Capella trade and went totally to the small ball so I could see that being a game they could win and then yeah. I guess Dallas. I don't. I mean, I think that I think the Clippers won. I think there's a chance that the Clippers just don't play any of their guys because they're locked okay. into two seed. Let's give them that. That's that's four. So they only get then they only got to take they got to take one from Denver and Dallas. So those two, like if if they get the if they go 500 versus Denver and Dallas, that seems reasonable. Like yeah. five wins, I think seems doable. I do have concerns. I just kind of think that Portland. I think. I think New Orleans is probably going to get the six. I think they're probably going to get the six wins because um, their schedule is just so easy. Everyone kind of talked about Portland's schedule. They're like, Portland's schedule is really easy. And I'm like, how are you figuring this? See, because I, 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 my first reaction to when I saw the schedules were the Blazers got a hard schedule. And yeah, I actually think they also, got a dis, they also got kind of a disadvantage because back like before the season was shut down, their remaining schedule had two games against Memphis. And the idea was they were three and a half games or whatever – behind Houston if they win both of those two games they can cut it down significantly now they only have one of those games to me their their playoff chances are just they have to get that first game against Memphis if they do then that cuts it to two and a half games and then from there it's a lot more doable to make up the gap especially with Memphis has some guys in like Tyus Jones they even just announced today was is going to be out so like they Memphis I like I think that like if they cut it down in the first game then they have a chance but if they lose that first game then it's probably a wrap that's what's crazy is this first game versus Memphis, them being two and a half point favorites. This is a must win for them. Like that's an absolute must win for them. And if they lose that, there's a like, like they might tailspin out. Like they can make the playoffs and they might just tailspin completely away. That's crazy. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, I thought that the, the second they released the schedule, that first one, uh, if they, if they, if they don't win that first one against Memphis, I just, I don't see them happen. I thanks to Sean for joining me. So we've talked about the Blazers. We've talked about what's in the bubble. We've talked about a team that's trying to get from the outside into the playoffs in Portland. Let's talk a little bit about an actual contender. The Los Angeles Clippers are an incredibly sexy pick to win the NBA title. They are the favorite of most of the wonks that I've talked to. All the analytically forward people are very high on the Clippers. I myself have written about how I can't really figure out where I should stand on them. There's obviously talent there, but there are things about them that kind of concern me. You can find their title odds anywhere between plus 170 to plus 250, depending on where you look. A lot of value, I guess, you know, on the Clippers. I think they're up there with the Lakers and the Bucks. but exactly how close are they? What's their chemistry issues? I had a bunch of questions. So I reached out to the Athletics' Jovan Bua. And he had some great insight. He's been covering the team for a long time. He had some really good insights on exactly what to expect for the Clippers, for their performance inside the bubble. And also, I wanted to get a sense of this. Um, are, is the chemistry going to be a problem? And what about the over-under for them of five and a half? I checked in on that. 
as well. Here's my conversation with Jovan Bua from The Athletic. My first kind of question for you is, I have been debating this question of continuity and chemistry. And I think those two things are very different. And you had reported alongside your colleagues at The Athletic back in January of some lingering tensions with the team on the chemistry front. It seemed like those things improved as things went on and that things got better. But I still have kind of a measure of concern over uh, what exactly this team's chemistry looks like. Like Everyone's very focused on the continuity side and they say, Look, if you, you know, yes, they guys have missed time, but when they play together, they're awesome. One of my issues has been, yeah, but like those are very select circumstances and it feels like that sample I don't necessarily trust, but like that's the primary argument is that the Clippers best ball is better than anyone else's. Um, do you tend to lean towards that assessment or is there something towards the idea that like look, the the chemistry and continuity stuff, we don't know how this is going to look once pressure kind of ramps up at the playoffs. I, I tend to lean towards the former point or, you know, the former part of your question. Uh, I, I do think at their best, I mean, the the stat that gets thrown out there is they're 10 and one when they have their top eight or nine guys healthy. And again, that's a small sample. I mean, that's not even 20% of the season. Um, but th- this team, I think in, in spite of that, you know, 24 and eight with, with PG and Kawhi, 33 and eight with Kawhi and, and Pat Bev, like, they have shown when they have their main guys, they can beat every you know basically anybody. Now they are uh, what I believe two and three against the Lakers and the Bucks, and and those are the two teams they're really focused on. You know they think that if they are to win the championship, they're going to have to go through the Lakers at some point, probably play Milwaukee in the finals. Um, but I, I, I'm with you. Uh, you know, obviously we, we reported that story in January. I think things have gotten better. Um, I think the team has made it a point to be more vocal with how involved Kawhi is as a leader. And, you know, I don't know how much of that's in relation to the story, but it it seems like that's been more of a narrative that that they've discussed openly is how much Kawhi talks in the group chat and and how much he's leading in the locker room and stuff like that. Um, So I, I think that situation has improved a lot. Um, and, and I think, um, you know, as our reporting kind of stated, some of that stuff was, was December into early January and then things had started to get a little bit better. Um, but it, it's, it's a fascinating question because I, I think you have, so, you know, so many interesting dynamics with this team. You have Kawhi and PG, but then you also have these role players that really, I mean, if you were ranking the most confident role players in the league, Lou Williams, Montrez Harrell, and Patrick Beverly would be near the top of that list. And, and all three guys, I think, look at themselves as better than role players. Um, you know, Lou and Trez view themselves as like all-star type guys. So right. um, I think the, the fascinating thing for me, and it's been the question for me since the preseason, is what does this team's closing lineup look like? You know, when they're playing the Lakers or the Bucks, and, you know, there's seven minutes left in a game, who are the five guys out there? We know it's going to be Kawhi and PG. But aside from that, we don't know who the other three guys are going to be. And I, I think some guys on this team are going to have to swallow that. I'm, you know, being benched at the end of the, you know, Lou Williams, we saw what the Lakers did to him at the end of that game. Can he accept not playing the last seven minutes of a game seven um, and, and not have that affect, you know, his, his psyche or, or just kind of the team chemistry at all? Like, I, I'm fascinated by that. And that's the thing I'm most looking forward to in the playoffs. So Pat Bev got back on the 26th. We're recording this on the 29th. So that would put him, if he, if he tested every day negative and got the four-day quarantine, that would get him out the day of 
um, Clippers Lakers on on Thursday. Do you expect him to? Has Doc said anything about expecting him to play in that game, or if, with him being gone, is he going to need conditioning before he plays? Is uh, it seems like Pat Bev could sure theoretically play, but I don't know if that means he's going to. So it's funny. Ever since Doc got fined that fifty thousand at the beginning of the season for kind of botching the messaging on on Kawhi's uh, injury management, uh, he he's been very coy with the media with injuries. So he's always noncommittal. Uh, he did upgrade Pat this morning from probably a maybe to a maybe. Uh, so I, <laughs> I okay. read into that what what you will. Okay. Um, if I had to guess, I would lean towards him playing. I, I think they're already shorthanded without Trez and Lou. Uh, I, I do think that. The, the seeding games are going to matter more to the Clippers than the Lakers. You know, the Lakers pretty much have the, the one seed locked up. Um, the, the Clippers have a comfortable lead for the two seed, and they have an easier schedule than the Nuggets, the, the Jazz, some of the teams they're competing with uh, for the two seed. But I do think for them it's going to matter, and, and I do think that they are going to try. So uh, I, I would expect Pat to probably pay, uh, play. You know, we don't have an official update on him. It, it will probably come out in, in a few hours or so. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, and Pat also has something, uh, he, he has a vendetta against LeBron and the Lakers. Like if we're being honest, like he, he, you know, anytime they play them, he says something crazy, uh, yeah. in the locker room and, uh, you know, that goes viral. So I think if anyone's going to be motivated to play in this game, it's Pat Beverly. Uh, so let's talk a little bit more of the trying thing. Cause I think that's one of the big questions, especially I think like, as I'm trying to analyze the, I did a whole thing on their team wins in Orlando, which is five and a half. Um, as, or six and a half, I believe. And I was just like, look, there's all these reasons to think that they can go over, but I just don't know if they're going to care. Like, I just don't know if they're going to care. What leads you to believe that they're going to try? Cause I'm very interested to hear that. I, I think they want the two seed. Um, okay. you know, I, I think that there isn't as much of a difference between the two seed and the three seed. Now that home court advantage is out, you know, right. facing Denver on the road in a game seven versus, um, you know, having that at Staples center would have been a, a key factor had that been still in play. But uh, I, I just think this team, um, they, were, they were really confident and, and happy with the way they were playing before the hiatus. I mean, at the time, uh, you know, they went 7-1 and one, you know, going into the hiatus. They had a league-best net rating of you know, plus 11.5. Um, really, out, outside of that Lakers loss, which was one of their worst shooting performances of the season, you know, they, they steamrolled Denver at, at Staples Center. You know, Denver had a, a team meeting after that game. They, they went into Houston stayed big and absolutely romped them and just, you know, embarrassed them at home. So I, I think they were playing great basketball and they really want to recapture that momentum and, and go into the playoffs with momentum. So I, I do think if it comes down to it, they are going to rest guys and they've been conservative all season. We've seen that anytime a guy gets nicked up, he tends to miss the next game. So that's where I would probably agree with you. I would take the under on the 6.5. Um, I view them as like a five and three or six and two team. I, I don't see them going seven and one or, or eight and zero, oh. uh, but I, I do think they're going to try. It's just you know losing. If Anthony Davis plays versus the Lakers and they don't have Lou and Trez, like they're probably going to lose that game. Um, it, you know, and, and then New Orleans is, is the next game where they won't have Lou and, and might not have Trez. I don't know. Like New, you know, New Orleans is playing better, so I, 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 I you know, their schedule is relatively easy compared to some of the other West teams, which is why I think they're a, a safe bet to probably stay in the two seed. But I, I, you know, with the injuries, with so many guys in and out of the lineup all season, like this team has just not been able to have any semblance of consistency or, or health. Um, you know, they're still really good. They're still the two seed, uh, you know, top five offense and in, in defense in the league. But um, I am interested to see how 
like their consistency in, in the bubble. But but to go back to the six point five, like I I would take the under on that. Uh, I do again. I think they're going to try. I just also think they've been a victim of circumstance uh, early on in, in the bubble so far. One thing I think is missed, and I, I spoke to a bookmaker about the line move because the Lakers went from in that game tomorrow, it went from a pick'em to Lakers minus four and a half. It's now bouncing between three and a half and four as we record this. I'm not going to ask you about the line, but one thing that I talked to a bookmaker about is like, look, it's the cumulative effect. It's not the Pat Bev's out and that takes off X, you know, X points off the line and then Lou's out and it takes X points off the line. But if Pat Bev and Lou are both out and Shamit has been is still getting back, um, and you have all these things, that cumulative effect adds up. But then I remember, like, oh, yeah, they, don't they have Reggie Jackson? Like, isn't this – like, it feels like they, they might be better, better equipped for backcourt losses than maybe we think they are. Yeah, yeah, I know. Re- Reggie Jackson has been a revelation for this team, which nobody saw coming. I mean, I, I was personally skeptical of the move. I, I felt they had too many shot creators already, too many, you know, shoot-first guys. And then adding another one in Reggie Jackson and also demoting him, you know, going from a starting role to – Hey, can you play 15 minutes a night off the bench? And you're not even the first or second option on the second unit. You have Lou and Trez there. You're at best the third option. You're also sharing that with Landry Shamit. So I, I was skeptical of the move, but Reggie Jackson has, has played really well. Um, I think he's currently posting a, a 67% uh, true shooting percentage, which is not sustainable at all. Uh, shooting good. 45% on threes, <laughs> but, but he, he's he's played well. And and you know one of the biggest things is he's unlocked Lou to to. Um, kind of alleviate him, have him play off the ball more, come off screen, spot up, do do different stuff. Um, so I, I think you've seen a benefit for Lou offensively. Lou was kind of quietly struggling. No one was really talking about that, but he, he had not been playing well for like a month, month and a half before they, they uh, signed Reggie Jackson. So I do think they're well-equipped. And uh, we, we saw it in a game in, in Minnesota in December where Kawhi and PG combined for 88 points, and they just went supernova. Uh, I mean, it was the Timberwolves, so it's a little bit different than the Lakers. But I do think that those two are capable of having that type of performance. I, I don't love the Lakers' wings uh, defending Kawhi and PG. So uh, if necessary, and if the Clippers really are going for it, you could play those guys 35 to 38 minutes and, and have each of them go for 30-plus and make it a game. Um I do think AD is probably the biggest swing factor in that game, of course. You know, it seems like he's going to play, but if for whatever reason the Lakers are conservative, maybe they don't want to show their hand. If, if he sits out, I would favor the Clippers regardless of Pat's status. But if AD plays, I mean, you, you probably should favor the Lakers. Okay, before we go to our last guest, did want to tell you guys, make sure that you rate, review, and subscribe. Sign up, download our app. Really need those subscriptions and five-star reviews. Make sure to leave them. Stay tuned on this channel for NFL, PGA, and NBA episodes all through August. We're getting you set. Sports are back. We've got you set. So we've talked about the Blazers that are on the outside trying to get in, the Clippers that are at the top. And in the middle, you got a team in the Jazz. And the Jazz are very interesting. Everyone's kind of written them off after, you know, they were the first team to spiral into the pandemic. Uh, their, obviously, chemistry has been disrupted by Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell, both testing positive for COVID-19 and some tension between the two over that fact. But there's been other problems like Bojan Bogdanovic's injury. Um, and just generally speaking, there's not a lot of confidence for the Jazz to go deep. So, But I wanted to make sure on that. And I want to get a sense for where they're at going into this thing. So I checked in with Tony Jones. Tony's a long-time, long-time Jazz beat writer. Uh, with The Athletic now, he has some really good things to, to provide as far as insight on what Royce O'Neal is going to bring to the table. Uh, and Donovan Mitchell and where his game is at. As well as some of the chemistry issues. We'll wrap up with 
my discussion on the Jazz with Tony Jones. If we look at where the Jazz are at, I haven't gotten to watch them in the scrimmages. Uh, I've been seeing you tweet about Donovan Mitchell. I went back and watched a little bit of his clips. He does look better in terms of his advancement on reads and some of the stuff that he's doing. How well positioned are they to be able to recover from losing Bogdanovich offensively? Because they were a much better offensive team than I think people realized in the regular season. The answer is really layered. I think they won't have much of an issue replacing the points, but the offense, that still doesn't mean that the offense is going to be as good as it was with Bogdanovich um, because Bogdanovich provided so much spacing and he has so much gravity uh, this season just because he's a volume 43% three-point shooter. And, you know, it, so the Jazz have to – there are different things that the Jazz have to account for other than the scoring with Bogdanovich. They have to account for uh, the spacing that Bogdanovich provides, which may or may not be there depending on how well Joe Ingles shoots the basketball or how often he shoots the basketball. They have to um, – they have to provide for Bogdanovich's ability to get into the lane and score at the basket. And the biggest thing that I didn't account for when the injury, when I saw the Jazz actually play in the three scrimmages, is that they are really, really, really small without Bogdanovich. Bogdanovich is bigger than people give him credit for. He's a full 6'8". He's a full 230. 235 pounds and he's a, he's he's a uh, he's a physical specimen in terms of size for his position and they just don't have that size for position right now um that Bogdanovich provides so everywhere on the floor other than Rudy Gobert the Jazz are a really small team so those are some of the things that they have to account for and I think that um and, and I think that how well or how how well they don't how well they account for them or how they don't account for them is going to determine uh, what the Jazz do offensively without them. Does Royce O'Neal give them a little bit better ability to get back to the defensive identity that they've had the last couple of seasons? Like they slipped a little bit on that end this season, and I'm really high on what he can do on the edge. I know you talked about giving up some of the size, and that's definitely a problem. But I feel like O'Neal is being underrated a little bit in terms of what he brings as a versatile defender. Well, he's a really good defender, um, and he's switchy. Uh, you know, he's he's guarded all five. Um, he's guarded all five positions. The thing that I thought was was great, the one of the best things that he did defensively this year, is when Houston went small against the Jazz. Instead of playing Tony Bradley in the non Rudy Gobert minutes. Um, Quinn Snyder played Royce O'Neal uh, at the five in the non-Rudy Gobert minutes and had him basically as the help guy, as the rim protector. And he did uh, a surprisingly really good, really credible job at it. So, you know, he's for sure their best defender outside of Gobert. He's for sure their most versatile defender, uh, probably, period. And uh, even though he doesn't have Bogdanovich's size, um, He's he's a guy that 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 really uh, that really helps on the defensive end of the ball. The problem is it, it just can't can't be just him. It has to be Mike Conley uh, staying in front of point guards. It has to be Donovan Mitchell uh, who has who has to defend as well as do everything that he does offensively. And it has to be Joe Ingles as well. 
So it, it's, it's going to be interesting to see uh, how the Jazz defend on the perimeter because that was really their, their weakness this season. Uh, and, and, it, and it put a lot of stress uh, on Rudy Gobert as good as he is. And, and I don't think that, you know, the Jazz can be successful uh, if it's just Rudy Gobert and, and Royce O'Neal being plus defenders. Everyone is obviously very keyed in on the dynamic and, and you wrote about it with Sam Amick during the hiatus and everything that went on with this team. Like the last time that we saw this team, they were literally, you know, the team that didn't kickstart. Like they, you know, I thought Rudy Gobert's interview today with the Washington Post was really insightful. And, um, like his comments about how like I brought the, uh, everyone talks like I brought the coronavirus to America. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of how I felt like he's got a lot of, pro- of, of blame for a global pandemic. Um, are you of the mindset having written what you wrote at the athletic uh, about their relationship? Are you of the mindset that these guys are professionals and the jazz organization have the, like that they're going to be able to just like get through this and be pros. Is the locker room in a place where it can do that? I think it is, um, but the caveat is I think it's going to take some work. Um, I, I think I think that those two can coexist on the floor, and 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 be uh, good teammates to each other, and and that's what they really need uh, for them. They don't have to be best friends. They don't have to be on each other's Christmas list. You know, they don't have to go to Benihana together, um, but they do have to be good teammates to each other, and. And they have to be supportive of each other uh, on the floor. They have to be supportive in the, of each other in the locker room when the subject has to do with basketball. And they, you know, they, ha- they have to be uh, guys that lead this franchise. I mean, they have – those two have, you know, really awesome responsibilities in terms of, you know, they are the, the two faces uh, of, the, of the Jazz franchise. And – when you're the face of the franchise, uh, even even when you're the best player, when you're 23 years old, that's difficult. Even when you're 28 years old, you still make mistakes. Um, so, you know, those two have to figure it out together uh, because the Jazz don't have any uh, – they don't have any inclination of moving on from one guy or the other. Uh, so, you know, they're kind of stuck with each other uh, until they're not. and how they kind of grow up and, and figure it out on the floor uh, that that's going to determine not only the face of the jazz in, in 2019, 2020 or the jazz in 2020, 2021, it's going to have far, far reaching implications uh, as to what the jazz do uh, down the further down the road. So in the season opener on Thursday night, uh, the last time these two teams played the Pelicans and the jazz they combined for 257 points. So they, they, it was a scoring binge the last time that these two teams face each other. Um, do you think that this one's going to be a little bit different? Do you think that the Jazz are going to have a little bit better defensive capability? The Pelicans have been able to absolutely rack it up versus most teams as long as they have favors in Zion and Zion's maybe there. Um, what are your expectations for that game? Well, I don't expect Zion to be a maybe. I think I, I expect Zion to play. Um, and I think that the Jazz are going to have major issues stopping uh, the Pelicans because of 
the way uh, Brandon Ingram is able to lift and shoot uh, over over oversized, and the way he's able to lift and shoot in the mid range, um, and and the Jazz play a ton of drop big, you know. So it's 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 gonna it's a tough matchup defensively for the Jazz. It was a tough matchup with uh, Bogdanovich, but now the Jazz are going to be uh, the significantly smaller basketball team uh, at almost every position. So it's going to be really really tough. Uh, for 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 them to 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 defend uh, the Pelicans. The Pelicans are really talented. I mean, they're they're talented. They're deep. They can shoot. Uh, they can go off the dribble. They have guys that can that that can make life uh, difficult for Donovan Mitchell. Um, they have guys that can make life difficult for Rudy Gobert. It's almost as if uh, I think the Jazz are going to have a really tough time winning this game tomorrow night. I also think to you know. To answer your question, I do think that there are going to be a ton of points scored because I think this game is going to be played uh, a lot in transition. Um, I think that it's going to be played in pace, and I think that there's going to be a lot of threes going up. The NBA is back. Can we get serious now? So let's bet the bubble. It may sound easy, but it will test your head and your mind and your brain, too. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Action Network HQ. Download our app, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Stay tuned for NFL, PGA, MLB, all the hits all throughout the month of August as sports return in all their gloriousness. And you can track them all on our app as we keep up with the action at the Action Network. Until next time, I'm Matt Moore. Thanks for joining me. We're finished talking.